Welcome to the Dive Podcast presented by Willamette Week. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Each week, we tackle a different issue that's uniquely Portland. So tune in every Saturday to hear a new episode complete with interviews and editorial that helps explain our city. From Portland's leading paper comes a brand new way to engage with the news, sports, arts, and culture. Stick around. Welcome to episode 20 of the Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Today is March 15th. It's so great to have you with us. We have a great show for you, but it's uh, two very different interviews in this show. We start off talking to arts and culture editor Matthew Singer, picking his brain about what the best food in Portland is these days. And then we finish off the episode talking to Tess Risky about her cover story. But first, all the headlines, everything you got to know, everything that happened in Portland this week. This is the 90 Second News Flash. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked to Tess Risky about weed robberies and she told us about the weed store employee who was shot and killed by a robber? Well, a grand jury has indicted a suspect who was suspected to have committed the murder. Daniel Magisha faces four counts of attempted murder in the second degree with a firearm, one count of robbery in the first degree with a firearm, and two counts of assault in the second degree with a firearm. Governor Brown has received some flack for how she's handled reopening, with some saying that things should be more open than they are. Brown says it really just hinges on whether people will get vaccinated. Brown says counties can go to the lowest restrictions available when they have 65% vaccination rates, and we won't see complete reopening until 70% of people have the vaccine. Last week, we discussed how black Oregonians are imprisoned at four times the rate of white Oregonians. Data from the 2020 Juvenile Justice Information System shows that black youths account for 48.3% of all detention center admissions. By comparison, white youths account for 25% of admissions. The Oregon legislature has extended the deadline of when you have to pay back your landlords. The new deadline is February 28th of 2022. A 71-year-old man got lost while hiking near Horsetail Falls. After a week-long search, he was found alive and has been reunited with his family. Very cute. If you've ever been staying at a hotel and thought, hmm, I wish this was more Northern European, you're in luck because the Nordic theme hotel Kex will reopen in June after the pandemic took away its business. Kex is located on the corner of Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and Cooch Street. Restaurants are requesting $65 billion for relief after Blumenauer pushed for a relief fund to be made. The problem is the relief fund only has $29 billion. Not good. Fans were allowed back in the Moda Center this week to watch the Trailblazers play, but Willamette Week News editor Aaron Mash says, above all else, it was mostly just kind of awkward. Read more about why it was awkward and all the other stories on our website, wweek.com. This has been the 90 Second News Flash. Folks, last week we took up the whole episode with our interview of Senator Merkley, so we didn't really get to discuss the cover story at the time, which last week was the best places to eat outside in Portland. So we wanted to circle back, and we start off this episode with an interview of our arts and culture editor, Matthew Singer, where he tells us where to get food, what the new places are, what the hot spots are. Take a listen. What are your, like places you're going to be going to first thing this summer when it's the first nice day, you're all vaccinated. Where are you going? I mean, uh, sugar pine, uh, out in, uh, Sandy, you know, it's right along the Sandy river there. Um, you know, it's like an old school, uh, style, 
uh, soft serve place and drive in. Um, that's like, that almost might be my favorite restaurant in Portland uh, right now. They just, they have, you know, these have these just amazing uh, soft serve Sundays and um, a, a great sandwiches. Pork sandwich is like one of the best in town. Yeah. Let's picture a very nice August afternoon, um, downtown Portland, Fields Park. Um, what let's let's have a whole picnic. Where are you getting dinner from? Where are you getting drinks from? And where are you getting dessert from? Oh geez. Uh it's the combination of um Tokyo Sando, which does these really great um Japanese uh style katsu, pork katsu sandwiches. Um, and it's cl- uh, close enough that you can walk to Waterfront Park and kind of eat it at the waterfront. So if I was gonna cross the river and go to downtown, you know, whenever downtown is not on fire, uh uh, that's probably what I'll be doing is getting a, a pork katsu sandwich and sitting at the uh, South waterfront and staring longingly at the water and getting very nostalgic for the city that I'll soon be leaving. A lot of restaurants have closed during the pandemic all around the country, but in Portland, what's a place that you really miss? Well, you know, I w- the one place that closed that I was going uh to, that, that was like, holy shit. When I, they said, so reel them in the dive bar on division that serves the best fried chicken in Portland. And then they said they were going to close down indefinitely. So I think a lot of people assumed, well, reel them in is dead, but it's back now. <laughs> and so I think if that had actually, and I've gotten their, uh, their fried chicken again, um, if that place had closed, I would be really, um, I'd be really sad. Now that we've talked about things that are closed, um, let's talk about on a more happy note. What are you excited about? Uh, what restaurants have opened up that you're excited about? Well, you know, what, you know what's been interesting is um, seeing how, you know, it almost seems like uh, a lot of these places, have cl- as soon as one place closes, something else moves into it and opens up. And in a lot of cases, it's been food carts kind of graduating to brick and mortar. And so probably the best that I've, I had a chance to have a couple of times now is a uh, Goomba, um, which is uh, they started out as a um, they, were, they were doing fresh pasta um, like out of a cart that I never went to it and it was a cart, but you know what the people that I know who ate there would, you know they would kind of say it's like you know it's, it's amazing that you're not eating this with like a fancy tablecloth and like you know candles lit like it was like incredibly advanced food for a food cart. And so they've moved in on Alberta to um, the uh, place that used to be uh, Aviary, which was another one of my favorite restaurants in town, uh, you know, kind of a crazy Asian fusion right. place um, that closed during the pandemic. Um, but they moved in there n- not too long afterwards and they've um, mostly been doing takeout. I think they've been, they started to do some outdoor service, but I've had them a couple of times now and it completely lived up uh, to the hype, just really fresh pastas. They changed their menu. Um, uh, daily, uh, but just like really, really amazing food and, 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 and pretty affordably priced as well for what you get. You get pretty huge portions for, uh, not that much. So I think that to me is probably the, of the places that I've had a chance to try myself, the one that's really stood out in the last year. Last question. Uh, I, my friends and I, we love uh, screen door. We saw the new ones opening up in the Pearl. You wrote about it. Can we expect the same screen door that we know on the east side, or is there going to be a new twist to this one? Um, all I really know from what they've said 
um, is that they are going to have an expanded menu because they're going to have a bigger kitchen. Um, they're going to be doing um, the chicken and waffles all day as opposed to just for brunch and lunch, which I think is uh, probably the, the thing that should excite people the most. Um, but I guess the biggest thing with them is with this second location finally opening, you know, they were supposed to open. I remember it was like literally December 31st, 2019. We got the press release that they were going to be opening a second location on the west side and obviously that did not happen last year so it's been like frozen on ice for like a year right. um i think the biggest the, the biggest thing for is just hopefully this will siphon off some of that weekend crowd that you famously get at screen door you know waiting waiting in line for brunch at screen door on the east side is it's kind of a rite of passage in portland like we it have to totally do it at least is. yeah yeah um so, you know, it's, it, waiting is just kind of part of the experience. It's, part of, it's a big part of just Portland culture in general. And I think maybe we'll know that Portland is back when more people are waiting in the line for food. Um, but hopefully it will make the wait a little bit less uh, interminable uh, now that there's going to be you know, two of them in town. Yeah, because it always seemed like it was West Side people like, like hyped over it as well. At least. And, and tourists, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So hopefully that'll... Okay, well, Matthew, thank you so much. For the little things I love Early in morning light And you don't think about the goodbye stuff Remember someday might come soon Some days when I wanna hold your hand I wonder if Now let's turn our attention to this week's cover story. The catalyst of this story is the death of Robert Delgado, a man who was struggling with homelessness. During what some describe as a mental health crisis, Delgado was playing with a fake plastic gun when police shot and killed him with an AR-15 in Lens Park. Tests investigated many aspects of the story, such as how police handle people going through mental health issues, why police have AR-15s in the first place, and how frequently fake guns end in death. We talked to Tess about her work on this story. Take a listen. Why are we seeing AR-15s in the police force? So since 2000, Portland police officers have been trained to use AR-15 rifles. Um, so currently 168 of the 812 members of the Bureau, so about 20% are trained to use AR-15 rifles. Um, and it wasn't just Portland that uh, cultivated a stockpile of these semi-automatic weapons um, around that time period. So there was sort of this seminal event that I kept coming across when I was researching AR-15s and how they became so ubiquitous among police forces in the US. And it was something called the North Hollywood Shootout in Los Angeles, California um, in 1997. That prompted a lot of police departments nationwide to purchase semi-automatic semi rifles. It seems to me as a logical thought process that the Portland police are thinking, okay, our job is to go into the most dangerous issues uh, that our city has, and people can go into Walmarts and buy AR-15s. So our police officers probably shouldn't carry them all the time, but if you need them, they're here and you're trained to use that. Is that a good way to think about it? I'm not sure. Um, what I know is that their policy is that patrol officers who are trained to operate AR-15s carry them at all times in their patrol vehicle. So it's it's in a locked like case in their vehicle. And when they're doing that, 
um, the, the rifle is not loaded. So they have to, you know, if they want to use it, they have to go unlock it from the case. They have to, um, load a round or however many rounds into the chamber. So, um, it's something that the officers who are trained do have with them when they're out doing their job. Um, but in terms of whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, there's some people who say, you know, then you have officers who are, um, you know, potentially trigger happy and they're just driving around and bringing an AR-15 to a knife fight, for example. Um, but then there's other people who say, you know, it's important for officers to have these readily available so that when something does happen, a really dangerous situation, you can quickly dispatch somebody who has um, high powered um, firearm that can shoot from a long distance away with like a lot of precision. You know, America also has more guns per capita than any other country by far. By far, it's not close. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, so, can I make a comment on that too? Like, yeah. uh, that's that's interesting that you bring up, you know, America has more guns per capita because in America, you know, the solution to that has always been, well, then we need more guns to deal with the amount of guns that we have. And that's what happened in the 90s or early 2000s in Portland because there's so many guns on the street you know, that police don't know how to fight against, you know, instead of proposing widespread legislation to make it difficult for people to purchase these weapons, it's okay, well, now we have to outgun them. So that was what happened back then. If I am in the park and I, or if I'm an officer trying to put myself in their shoes and I see a kid playing with a gun, I'm going to probably think that's a kid playing with a plastic gun. If I see a grown man playing with a gun, with something that looks like a gun, I'm going to probably think that's, uh, that's a gun. So how was this handled? Was this mishandled or was just, or was this a unfortunate situation? There's a lot of ways to answer that. I mean, first of all, we know police don't always just believe a gun is a toy even with a kid I think Tamir Rice was like right right sure with a, with a replica gun so even then great like, point yeah uh, it's dicey but yes to answer your question um the replica gun thing is a huge problem from what I understand um it's because the tricky thing with the replica guns is you don't want to wrongly assume either way right you right. don't want to assume you know somebody has a gun when they don't. But what if you say, oh, that gun looks like it might be a toy gun. Therefore, we're going to have our guard down and, you know, not be as strategic or careful about how we respond. And then it is a real gun. And then, you know, people who are in the vicinity, just civilians get injured or police get injured as a result. So there's always that balance that, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, basically. Like, Either way, being wrong either way can be deadly. Being wrong about a gun being real when it's not can be deadly. And being wrong about a gun being a, a toy when it's actually real can be deadly too. So you're kind of playing with fire no matter what when you have a replica. Right. Gun. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the uh, the list of questions that the dispatch that the dispatch asks, and I want you to add a question or two that you think would make this better. Can we do that? Sure. Okay, so the questions are, what uh, are, are weapons involved? What type? Who has the weapon? Describe the subject. And where is the weapon? Where is it located? So how can this be made better? Well, after you establish what kind of weapon it is, i.e. a gun or a knife or some kind of blunt object, um, and you find out, it, oh, it is a gun, according to the caller. 
I think a good question would be just, is the person in like close vicinity to others? Like what is their proximity to other members of the public? Like with Robert Delgado, he was down in this part of the park where at 9 a.m., you know, on a Friday, it wasn't particularly busy. There weren't a lot of people around. And then that can clue officers in as well. It's like, okay, so, you know, this isn't like a crowded area the person is in. And these weapons questions would be useful to be paired with more questions about what the person's behavior is looking like in terms of it being potentially erratic. Um, And the reason why that matters is because if the person might be experiencing some kind of mental health crisis, that's another important factor for police to understand and to um, come into the situation knowing about before they get there. To be honest, every time that I see an article about, and when I started reading your article, I started thinking in my head like, oh no, what's what's the, what's the police messing up this time? What are the police messing up this time? Um, and yet when I kept reading, I kind of was struggling to figure out what the police were doing wrong. I mean, in these instances, either, you know, you talk about instances where people are coming from bank robberies, where they've committed crimes and they get shot with with what they say are uh, fake guns, um, people playing with fake guns and not uh, complying with officers. Am I just really naive? Am I missing something? Or is this problem not really uh, one that we can blame police force for? It's not a problem that can be entirely blamed on police. It's this is now like feels trite to say, but it's the whole system that is the problem. So police are just one element to that response system. And I'm glad you bring that up because I think a lot of times when people think of like an officer involved shooting, which is a euphemism, I think the better term would be situations where police shoot and or kill somebody. They think of it as beginning when the cops arrive on the scene but there's a lot that leads up to that moment, right? That is critical. Um, there is first the people who call 911 to report whatever it is that they're seeing. So, you know, in that sense, the problem is us, you know, the, the people, the neighbors, the residents, whatever, who are calling 911. And the part of the question that I, I hope people ask themselves or like think about from the story is, okay, so when I see something that is quote unquote suspicious, or I see somebody who's quote unquote making a disturbance and I want to call 911 and tell them about it, you know, it's to pause and ask, is this something that actually merits a police response? Um, Is this something that maybe like we'll wait and see and let it kind of calm down a little bit? Did I read it correctly that people are, have been shown to, add in that there is a weapon present, even if there isn't a weapon present, so they get police to come quicker? Yeah, this That's is something insane. that <laughs> this is something that has just been anecdotal among folks I've been speaking to in the last five or so months about, you know, police policies and responding. There was that saying going around a couple years ago that if you want PPB to show up, you have to say that there is a weapon of some sort, otherwise they don't come. And so first of all, making a false report is a crime. So we'll just be clear about that. Um, But if you peel back the layers and kind of tease that out a little bit, that sentiment, um, there's a lot of things going on there. So, you know, there are folks in 
East Portland, not everybody in East Portland or, you know, the Lentz area, but there are some people who live in that area who have what I would describe as an animosity towards the unhoused population. And that results, that's also the result of a lot of different factors. Um, and so there's a mentality among some of those neighbors, neighbors all over Portland. I'm not saying that's just one part of town, but there certainly are people who, when they see an unhoused person, they just want it, you know, out of their sight, so to speak. They want the problem quote unquote, taken care of. Um, and that can be pretty dangerous. Um, and there's also a sentiment among some people in East Portland that, you know, City Hall neglects us over here. City Hall does not care about us. They don't listen to our voices. Our infrastructure is not, you know, as up to date as the rest of the cities. And they also feel like police respond more slowly out there. Is there evidence to support that claim that police take three, four, five times longer to get to a situation where there isn't a weapon present? I'm not sure exactly. I do know that there was a whole bunch of trouble this past summer, you know, complaints of um, PPB responding really slowly and of calls at BOEC being put on hold for like 10 minutes or something. So it kind of stems, I think, a lot of that mentality has been recently ramped up in the last few months with those discussions and with Portland police saying during every you know press conference they hold that they don't have enough resources and aren't able to respond quickly to calls. You know who I thought came off as really like pretty intelligent was Mingus Maps. I thought he came off as very um, knowing his shit as people could say. Yeah, Mingus Maps is, is definitely, you know, a sharp politician and a sharp yeah. person in general but he i mean he strikes me as very intelligent i think maps really ran on the like anti you daily platform and this can be on the record he can put this in i don't care and now is the time for him to really flex his muscles of like who is mingus maps not as an opponent of chloe you daily but as a commissioner what can you get done in this city and what can you improve so i think you know, this is a big opportunity for him to actually like really do that and flex those muscles as a commissioner who's just, you know, independent of your campaign opponent. What can you accomplish during your time here? Always trying to keep my balance, but my surface gets simmer. What used to be a bridge is now the width of a razor. The ones who care about me watch my face get thinner. Their eyes get more concerned while mine get dimmer. Started out having fun, just another way to play. Now I'm falling headfirst into unforgiving ways. 20 episodes in the book, but we're not celebrating. We're not getting cocky. We're just excited about episode 21. I hope you join us. Till then, stay safe. And I don't know, maybe check out some of the restaurants we talked about today. And if none of those are appealing to you, first of all, what's wrong with you? Soft serve is awesome. But there are many more options on our website, wweek.com. Have I plugged that enough? For Willamette Week, I'm Hank Sanders. See you on the 22nd.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week. For more information on this podcast or the biggest stories in Portland, go to wweek.com and follow Willamette Week on all socials. We're doing some really cool things related to the podcast on our Instagram and Twitter. Includes giveaways, behind the scenes, etc. A lot of cool things coming your way, so give those a follow. Special thanks to our guests for joining us, and thank you to Aaron Mesh, Mark Zussman, and Brian Panganibon, as well as the entire Willamette week family last but not least thank you so much to heather witty and ampmusic.co for the music that you hear on this podcast for willamette week i'm hank sanders this has been the dive podcast Music